Hello, everybody, and welcome back to All Opinions, No f Sorry for the stutter there. I was trying to choke down a laugh. Uh, this is Preston. And Brennan. <laughs> Brennan just stared at me awkwardly. I was like, I, I think we got an opener. We, we, the intro is not done yet. <laughs> Way to be on top of it. Very like end with all of you. Yeah. Which brings us to our topic for tonight. We <laughs> promised it a few episodes ago. And the episode after that one, and the episode after that one. But here we're going to talk about the book *Sapiens*. I delayed. I was scared to deep dive into this book because I feel like it would cover too much of my ancestry. Yep. <laughs> Where do we come from? Oh shit! Which lineage did I come from? <laughs> I'm pretty sure it was at least fifty percent Neanderthal. <laughs> Neanderthal. <laughs> That's how you're supposed to pronounce it. Ah, oh, damn it. Yeah. All right. So the book is called *Sapiens*. Subtitle: A Brief History of Humankind. It is by, and I have no idea how to pronounce this, but let's say Yuval Noah Harari, which is actually sounds right. That sounds pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. So I recommend that you read that book. It's extremely good. I didn't technically read it. I read like half of it, but I actually listened to the audiobook. I audiobooked it. Yeah, and the guy that got to read it is great. He is very British, and he pronounces all sorts of words wrong, and it makes me laugh every time. Like, he pronounced estrogen estrogen. Right. And so that's just like one funny example. But it's actually um, not, a, this is not making fun of the book. It was a really good book. Great book. A lot of coverage. I mean, as it says in the subtitle, right, a brief history of Mankind and basically the book, my quick overview is simply it covers anything and everything of humanity and how we think and how we conduct ourselves right. to where we came from. Right. So the book has, I wanted to say four parts, but it has a it has more than that. It has at least six parts. The first part is like four or five chapters, and it talks about where humans came from. And in that part, he specifies that in this book he's going to be using the genus and species, which is Homo is the genus and Sapiens is the species. And he says right off the bat that Homo means human. Therefore, all the other Homo species, Homo erectus, Homo neanderthalus, are all also humans. And so whenever he ref says the word human in this book, he's referring to any of that genus. And whenever he's talking about us as the human species, he's he uses the word sapiens. Correct. Which is I, something I thought that was really, like, that was one of the that first things that down. struck me, is I never thought about it that way. Yeah, and this book, in my overview of listening to it and trying to take notes, is there's just so much hard data there, because mm -hmm. he carbonates everything, gives you the timestamp of everything, like, it's such a solid information book. Right. It's literally an information guide of everything, you're like, holy shit. Right. But, and uh, the my one... I think one of my complaints with it, which I don't necessarily think is in, is the author's fault, is when I'm listening to the audiobook, I mean, he constantly um, qualifies statements and conclusions. Right. He's constantly get, telling you what he's talking about right now as a theory, and but the way that the, that the narrator reads it is so compelling that I'm just like, oh yeah, that's fact right there, instead of re realizing and remembering. It's like, it's truly like an academic paper. Yeah, I suppose so. Where he, where he's sourcing everything. Right. And then he goes to different culture, and you're like, what are we talking about? Then you're like, okay, you got to cross-reference a lot when you're listening or right. reading it. Yeah. Because it's a lot of sources, a lot of days, a lot of timestamps. Yeah. A lot of data. Right. And so, you're like, what's his narrative versus the versus source? The facts. Yeah. Right, exactly. <clears throat> yeah, and so um, that's probably my one complaint with the book. Well, my other complaint is that later on in the book, it becomes, is it Western-centric? Is that the term? Yeah, I'd say so. Um, but that, again, these are relatively minor complaints. Um, you know, it's hard to write a book that is from an Eastern perspective when you were raised in the West, you know. But uh, to go back to the overview, so there's the first part, like I said, four or five chapters, is about the biology of humans and the different species. The second part is about the agricultural revolution, I believe. Mm -hmm. um, what I should probably do is right. actually look at the index. But basically um, it goes... Part three is the unification of humankind, which is talking about how our cultures grew and turned into like a massive global megaculture, basically. Basically how we went from groups of people then living in a bigger structure based, right. on, based on demand of what we had. Right. For example... What we're trying to top here is one of the biggest things is wheat, food, food sources. Right. And then wheat was the biggest food source that was able for people to grow and multiply. Right. He says, 
One of my favorite lines in the entire book is talking about wheat. He says, we talk about how we domesticated wheat, and I'm paraphrasing here, but what really happened is that wheat domesticated us. Correct. And he says, because who is it that picks the rocks out of the fields because wheat doesn't like it? Who is it that weeds all the other little plants because wheat doesn't like to share its resources? Who is it that digs canals to bring water to the wheat because the wheat is thirsty? You know, like wheat. And then he finishes all of these and it says he, and he restates. Uh, Reiterates. Wheat domesticated us. Yeah. And I thought that it's like, yeah, he has like lots of great stuff like that. Yeah, his narrative spin on it is like, wait, who's leading who? Right, exactly. Right, and then... Yeah, and obviously in the agricultural age, we grew to then the, how we learned how to crop. Right. Then we okay, they planted, they put the seeds on the soil. They realized, oh wait, we got to dig down, go deeper. Right. And then how it's brought it out, mm-hmm. water sources. Right. To tools. Right. Yeah. We, so um, then so I was right initially. We'll definitely come back to the agriculture piece of it, but um, I was definitely right the first time. There are four parts in the book. So the part three was again the unification of humanity. Part four is the scientific revolution. And then that's that goes to the, the present day and he kind of extrapolates what, what possibilities are in our future. So okay. that is an overview of the book. I definitely like the first two parts better than the last two parts. Why is that? I mean, Did you not know much about the, the baseline of the evolution? Or it was it different from your childhood of the biblical context? I guess he connected a lot of dots for me. Like I have all this other in all these other books I've read or things that I've like documentaries I've watched that sort of thing, and also some of what he talks about really uh, lines up with some of the philosophical musings that I have or that I listen. You know, I've talked about how I lost listen to lots of Alan Watts, and so I just it, the first two ch- the first two parts of the book just uh, they just jived with me more. Mm-hmm. The last two parts, first of all, I don't really care that much about like modern culture. I'm kind of a hermit. Um, and so, and I also, I actually would say I did know more about the, the latter half of the book. Although, again, the. Well, the, the latter book, half goes into what we experience. Right. So you were more interested in the precursors to where yeah. we are today. I'm more interested in how we got to, where, to what That's we are right. to where we are. Yeah. Correct. Correct. So, in that, you have all the different elements, right? Right. The, the societal growth that we talked about. Majority of hum- humans lived in empires, they called it. Because it was safer based on numbers, resources, education, right. and the ability to share right. and build. Yes, but we're getting ahead of ourselves here a little bit because that's in part two. So the first part talks about how basically humans, he talks about the various different human species. You know, there's like a dwarf species, I can't remember what it's called, Homo dominatus or something like that. That was a tiny little dwarf species, like three feet tall. On some island, was it Madagascar? I don't know. Yeah, see, this is not this is not factual. This is just talking about overall impressions of the book and various tidbits that we remember, right? Yeah, well, this is where it's hard because there's so much information. Yeah, we cannot remember every part of it because it's right. so much data. But basically, in the inception and the evolution of, there is yeah. multiple species that right. died out and one lived. Right. That's what it really comes down to. And then based on the geographical location of where they were at and the resources with which they had. Right, yeah, exactly. So, initially, humans started as basically intelligent apes that would eat everything. They're omnivorous apes. Huge variety of plants and animals. It allowed for all of... Uh, it allowed for famine and disease to right. not be uh, catastrophic because if one plant or animal goes extinct from overhunting or, you know, is diseased or in that area, it just... The weather is not... Doesn't cooperate that year. There's... Dozens or hundreds of other potential food sources that you can rely on, and so the one of another part of the book that I really uh, that really kind of surprised me, but makes a lot of sense, is he talks about how the average hunter gatherer human or sapiens mm-hmm. had probably a better, more fulfilling, and healthier life than the average peasant throughout most of human recorded history. Because they had a huge variety of food, which means they got all their essential nutrients. Whereas peasants would work hard and only have a few staple crops and they would not have most of the nutrients they needed. Cereals, you know, grains, wheats, uh, barleys, those kinds of rice. They don't have a lot of the minerals you need. They don't have the vitamins you need. It would, there was more people packed into smaller areas, which created more disease infested areas. Mm -hmm. And then the combination of the poor diet and the tighter packed populations 
created just way more deaths from disease mm-hmm. and from sanitation caused diseases you know like diphtheria right. and yeah. typhoid and shit mm-hmm. so but it's funny because they, it's like the the evolution of the timeline right meaning right. they grew to live closely together in village type things because they could share resources right. and do things but then that was the downfall of it right that was the downfall of it and it comes down to their lifespan is 17 years but it was better 17 years right. than the ones that lived to 25. Right. and <laughs> Exactly. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? So quality yeah. of life was better based on resources. Right. And uh, he's, he, one part, he talks about how genes and biology are, don't measure success by happiness or quality of life. You know, health, or health, all they measure success by is copies of DNA. And as long as you're healthy enough to reach puberty and reproduce, that's considered genetic success, right? So quality of life dramatically dropping did not impact humanity's success and that's why we, so even though our life sucked after the agricultural revolution our population exploded which was a vicious circle that as the population increased life got shittier so we had more people to well, again, help with the work which made life shittier and so it's kind of like what we're experiencing now more people means more competition right for everything and anything right so but yet you're more social. But this is, goes back to, and this is where it's really, this book was all over the place covering everything. But we're social beings. Right. So we enjoyed the competition or the level. That's why the hunter-gatherers were happier mm-hmm. because there's a level of competition and doing, accomplishing. Yeah. And going outside of your, what, how do you say it? Well, they were, they were doing the things that their bodies and minds were designed for. Intended for, yeah. I don't know if it designed is the right word or intended is the right word, but... The, the types of things that the brain rewards are the kinds of things that hunter-gatherers do. Right. You know, the brain doesn't reward sitting at a cubicle all day typing numbers into Excel. It doesn't reward spending 12 hours a day hoeing and tilling your fields. Right. Right. You know, that's not... And I think in this chapter, too, i got to remember the chapters in the lineage here, so you'll correct me otherwise. But in this, I thought it was very fascinating, the difference between when they're talking about the different species at different times and the, the ability to communicate, mm-hmm. tell a story or tell a meaning to the others. Yes. Whereas other species didn't have that brain power or capacity or means. Right. And then how that was the biggest evolutionary means to the next level. Right. That was our biggest advantage. It, right. It, that, that right there jumped the evolution from DNA to cultural. Correct. And so also. our... Our society has tossed away genetic evolution, which even as a high schooler, you know, I I used to think and I still think that humanity, as far as our physical capabilities, is de-evolving and has been for several hundred years at least, especially since, you know, the information age. But our culture and our science more than make up for it, at least for now. Yeah, that, well, what you just said, that's a big premise, and that's well, that's a whole other episode, I feel like, mm-hmm. because that's that, I think that should be a follow-up episode, because yeah. we don't need to think anymore. Right. So the masses are not doing so well right. in brain capacity, because they don't have to, Right. and then you have a select few just being the puppet masters again. Right, exactly. You know, why, why, Which, we don't have to think, that's what elected officials are for. Right. Uh-huh. Yeah. And so, in talking about the evolution to communication, being able to explain a task, a function, or a story onto the next person or individual to the next was huge. Yeah, that is what allowed us to to move past the limitation of approximately 100 members of a society, of a group. That's what it was, 100, that's right. It was about 100, peop- 100 members, and he, he taught, this is, includes other species, like right. chimpanzees. Right. Like the largest, I think there have been like maybe a couple of larger groups of chimpanzees that we've seen, but generally after reaching the 100 unit mark, there's some kind of divide and then they split off into smaller unit, into smaller groups. And that was the same for humans until agriculture, which Mm -hmm. made us start thinking more into the future rather than, you know, we we thought about the future as hunter-gatherers, you know, maybe the next week or the next month, but that was about it. Well, food sources weren't as scarce and yeah so right. population was just growing yeah i mean you didn't have to you didn't worry about what if you could find food in a year because mm-hmm. 
I mean, you it, you you knew dozens or hundreds or thousands of different food sources, and you could always just you had few belongings, so you could always just pick up and move to somewhere where there are resources if you are hungry. You know, and once you're a peasant, you're basically chained to your land because it takes so much time and effort. Right. Then that's not that's no longer an option. Suddenly, the future is a lot more important to think about. And I think that that is when the real horrible anxiety that humans have started. But that's pure speculation. I doubt it. I mean, yeah. Because I actually heard a really good quote the other day. It was yesterday, I think. I don't remember who said it. It might have been Ramdas. But basically said, all fear lives in the future. And so... So, yeah, I'm not surprised in what this chapter showed us and indicated how we became more of the masses growth in wheat and products and then the disease because we're you know in a breeding to you know diseases so on and so forth and then we ate anything so that also killed people too <laughs> yeah I, I, oh well that wasn't a good thing to eat hey johnny don't eat that yeah. noted but that's how we learn though right this is how cultures learn like oh peggy ate that the other night and well died so don't so do don't that. that right and that's how we commit you know that's huge. Yeah, you Building know, learn, that knowledge base is huge. Yeah, learn from others, right? That's something that a lot of people seem to have forgotten that skill. Well, yeah, we want that. How to learn? Experience. How to learn from others' mistakes? Yeah, humans like firsthand experience. That's a fact. So, I think that's the biggest takeaway. We know many species died off. We're a hybrid of multiple species, right? Oh yeah. Speaking of many species died off, I want to read. There's, I had a, a one really good quote. He talks about how humans basically, once we, once we figured out how to travel and spread and started spreading, everywhere we went, sapiens wiped out huge numbers of species anywhere yeah. they landed. And one chapter, chapter four, it's called the flood. And in this case, the flood is the flood of humanity wiping out the planet and all of its biodiversity. But he says, don't believe the tree huggers who claim that our ancestors lived in harmony with nature. Long before the industrial revolution, Homo sapiens held the record among all organisms for driving the most plant and animal species to their extinctions. We have the dubious distinction of being the deadliest species in the annals of biology. Top of the food chain, bitches! (laughs) I mean, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a pretty damning uh, conclusion there, but yep, there you go. Damning, but also awesome. Yeah, I suppose. I guess. I mean, if you want to, if you want to live in a world that has way less life. Well, well you created a world. Now you control the life in which it's what you want to live in. You know what I mean? Right. And now according you... to Christian mythology, Christian mythos, that is desirable because God gave us this planet for our for, for us to exploit, basically. For yeah. Our own for our vision. Yeah. Needs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But actually, um, I just scrolled up and saw a quote that actually kind of. Um, this when I heard this quote, which is a little bit earlier in the book, so I apologize. It cemented in my head what I said earlier about how I think humans are devolving. So here's chapter three: A day in the life of Adam and Eve. When agriculture and industry came along, people could increasingly rely on the skills of others for survival, and new niches niches for imbeciles were opened up. You could survive and pass your unremarkable genes to the next generation by working as a water carrier or an assembly line worker. Boom brutal but yeah there it is it's true yeah it's a hundred percent true i mean in my life versus our parents life versus their i mean right there's so all these skill sets die out in each generation and even back you know yeah you you know at some point in time you had to be a do-it-all a utility player know everything right so the hunter gatherers knew hundreds and thousands of plant species what when they could eat them what they looked like you know how to prepare them because there's some mushrooms for example that you have to cook and then there's some you can eat raw there's some mushrooms that look exactly the same as other mushrooms that are toxic and there's and thousands and thousands of plants you know so right and animals you had to know which animals you could eat which were toxic but this also speaks to the level of organization which is what he talks about right as the human experience growing we learn to organize better right categorize specialization specialized yep. niches right is okay well i need three guys doing this function i need three guys doing this function and this is where the perception and then who is the leader and how they get the structure the hierarchy the pyramid the pyramid, the pyramid beyond built. yes go ahead yeah. i don't want to get ahead of you because that's no i mean um that's chapter six that speaks up to of my next uh, thing i highlighted was just in chapter six best segue ever called building pyramids 
And I just now realized that that is a metaphorical pyramid that he's talking about, in addition to legitimate pyramids, because he talked about that. But he said, uh, history is something that very few people have been doing while everyone else was plowing fields and carrying water buckets. And I really like that because it really speaks to how you have to keep in mind when you're reading about history that history is a very, very incomplete picture told by the victors. And so there's a lot of missing information when you're reading histories. So it's better to look at overall patterns than it is to try and look at the specifics and make predictions based on those specifics. Read between the lines. Right. Yeah. 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 I think that's very true. And I think, but yes, it's a figurative pyramid because it talks about the hierarchy of how we then build it within the family structure, the corporate structure, the farming structure, the supply and demand structure. Yeah, it's sad and true. And then obviously how religion came about. Well, I'll, I don't... You be the No, new, go ahead. Go ahead. You know, but then this is how the evolution of, okay, we have the masses in culture. Now, whether it's within, you know, a city, you have the emperor, you have a governor, you have whatever, mm-hmm. but then the lieutenant, you have to build out a system of chain of command, I right. guess you could a hierarchy, say. Yeah. Yep. A hierarchy, chain of command. And this is where the man, again... The exploitation of the man, they talk about. Yep, that's actually... So I started re-listening to the book um, mm. to refresh my memory, and I'm in the part now where he's talking about... He's talking about the various speculations about why most societies are patriarchal. And a lot of them arguments... He, he, he talks about all the different arguments and then talks about why they're not convincing. Like, one theory is that men are stronger than women. And his counter-argument is, okay, well, first of all, not all men are stronger than all women. It's just on average men are stronger than women. There's plenty of women who are stronger than plenty of men. Mm-hmm. Two, depends on the strength you're talking about because women are better at dealing with malnourishment. They're better at dealing with disease and they're better at dealing with fatigue. They're also better at dealing with pain. We know this because ask any man if he'd rather be the child the child birther than women and they'll be like, fuck no. But for some reason, men are in charge, right? But anyway... He also says most of the difficult job or most of the jobs that men did that are ruling are like non-physical jobs like priests, you know, bureaucrats, politicians, kings. It's not physical labor intensive. But women did plenty of that. They tilled the fields, you know, they did all sorts of strenuous physical labor. Mm -hmm. So that argument doesn't really hold water. And then another argument was men are more aggressive than women. Kind of similar type of vein. Yeah, men are more aggressive than women. They make up the military. They're good at being the soldiers. But it doesn't necessarily mean that the men have to control the soldiers. You know, Being more aggressive makes you a better soldier. Doesn't mean you're a better commander or a better general. So why would, you know, why would that make, preclude women from being the generals or the kings or whatever? Mm-hmm. So that argument is kind of out the window. And mm-hmm. we don't really, and then I think, what was the other one? I don't remember what the third one was, but basically he says, we don't really know why as of yet. So what do you think? Why do you think that uh, men, that the societies are generally patriarchal and have been for a really long time? I think it goes back to the the formative years, the Fremore chapters, the, the chapters one through four, mm-hmm. whereas they were the hunter-gatherers mainly. I think it, it was a natural, you can't, you dominated, you went and got whatever animal you're able to kill it mm-hmm. and you took the risk I think I think guys are more I mean it's general statements here obviously they're higher risk takers you know if I, I could jump to that rock and get that tree and women I'd probably be more calculated maybe hmm. and I think over time because of that risk reward hmm. equation I would say that's my understanding of why men probably dominated Early on, it wasn't the physical. We always talk about the physicality of men, and they dominate, and they're hunter gatherers, and that's how they think. And and they're also, I think it's a sexual thing too, right? Because they want to spread their seeds, so they'll do whatever it takes to spread their seed. Right. I think that's one of the uh, reasons why. So, hmm. I think that plays into it a lot. Okay. Which he spoke to that with chimpanzees, and you know they just fucked anything. The bonobo <laughs> monkeys, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> and that's you know, and I think that speaks to the dominance and the patriarchal societies in which we've seen throughout the course of time and then obviously we talk about later on and you know we just recognize the men and we talk about possessions and ownership of land and 
and this is how women kind of just fell into women became possessions possession. rather than yeah because we were, there was a it was just a succession right and I I see it from this standpoint it's just it's very linear it's like okay we could buy land now we could now own this this and this and women being one of them again this book covers a lot but each society we put men in all the right you know symbolic figures in each area right. whether it's a priest or you know what I mean Jesus. Like, you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. so we have an innate image identity where we were always led. We're supposed to lead. Right. So I think what you're getting at is it's like ingrained in us from birth through our cultures. Yeah. It's ingrained from us from the hunter gatherer standpoint. Right. And I think it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's in our genes at this point. Right. Yeah. And if you look at it through all cultures today, it's still the same thing. Yeah, so one of the things that he mentions in the book is that because humans became upright walkers, it narrowed our hips, and so we had to give birth sooner, which meant we, we gave birth to more immature, still-developing babies. And so that means that our brains are much more malleable than the average animal, mm-hmm. which, is, which allowed us to evolve culturally rather than biologically, because... Most animals are basically fully formed when they, when they arrive. Mm-hmm. When they come out of mom, a horse can basically stand up right away, whereas it takes humans like a year to walk, mm-hmm. to stand up. And so that means that we're very malleable from a young age. And I don't know if people realize this. Um, I didn't realize it for a long time, but the instant you're born, you, your brain starts making connections. Even if you don't really understand at the time what's going on, all those, everything happening around you is making an impact, is making an impression. So people think that little boys just like running around with guns and stuff. No. Yeah, maybe there's something to that, but I suspect that from day one, people behave differently around baby boys than they do around baby girls. And when they aren't paying attention and they're just acting normally, you know, they pick up on those things. And that probably programs boys to act like masculine, quote unquote, and girls to act feminine, quote unquote. I totally... I believe this. He does a great breakdown of why we are where we are. It's based on association, association and imprints of the brain right. and connecting all that together and well-spoken. And I think it's very true. Our brains always thinking, you know, whether consciously or subconsciously. Right. We're taking in a lot. Yeah. It's how we then connect it and use it moving forward. Right. And uh, I think it's very true. And a lot is cemented before you even learn to speak. Right. A lot. So, and that goes to the quote you want to say, right? Is the culture versus genetic. And then, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves here, but I think overall, I will, let me backtrack and go back. I think we've always been in a patriarchal society because, like what he says, just it's been imprinted and we're the leader based on, I think it's a sexual dominant thing to a hunter-gatherer standpoint, to a natural protector, and then in turn it became a legal and societal norm. Right. So I, I suspect that it was less that the difference was le- less substantial during hunter-gatherer times than it was once agri- the agricultural revolution sure. came about. Because uh, the agricultural revolution, one of the main things about that was well, first of all, he he says it's the is history's biggest fraud was the agricultural revolution because it was a trap, um, which is why he talks about how hunter-gatherers had happier, more fulfilled, healthier lives than peasants. Because as soon as people started growing their own food, they stopped moving around. The variety of foods went way down, like we said before. And all of a sudden, these bulging granaries that you, you know, you have to think about next year and the year after. So you have to store some of your food. And now all of a sudden, people that don't feel like backbreaking hours in the fields come across your granary and they steal all your food and then you're fucked. And so they had to start building walls and they had to start posting guards. They had to start defending themselves. And I think that might be the beginning of the patriarchy because in that case, yes, men are better at defending with violence against things like thieves, robbers. And I don't think at that point it was armies. It was just maybe small bands. And so the point that he made about armies not being needed to be led by the bloodthirsty man who's more aggressive doesn't really apply in the early days of the agricultural revolution when it was still quite small bands. That's what I think. Yeah, I, 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 I get the angle in what you're saying, and I agree with you. And one thing I will say, though, that I took away, at, not how he said it, but how I interpreted it, is to say, 
when we're hunter gatherers, more solo. We're no nomadic. Right. Smaller groups. Yeah. Less comparison. Less structure. No belongings. No belongings. Of, just yeah. pure creativity and just fun. Having to learn and grow all the time and just not building. Neither are you comparing. You're not going tribe to tribe going, oh, I got this, I got this. Then it's not like a gang war. You're not dealing right. with that. Right. You're just surviving. You're, you're like a big you're like a big boy scout. You're working together. You're doing, yeah. But it's a much smaller group. Right. And so it was, it was more, again, collective. And there were downsides to that because if you fucked up and you or you were old and you weren't capable of keeping up, they would just leave you and you would die. Yeah. But until that happened, you know, don't fuck up. You're in a, living a pretty good life. So. Yeah, but smaller groups, less competitive, more collective, and you weren't rank and file. It's, hey, let's all learn this together. Let's see who's good at this. Whereas when you started doing the agriculture revolution, it's all... It's all categorized. Yeah, you went from groups of hundreds to group a hundred to groups of a thousand, right? Much co- closer quarters and with much less rich of a variety of foods and, then and resources. Comparing. You know, the biggest, I think, one of the biggest problems in humanity in the course of time is comparison. If right. I see you on a weekly basis now, whereas before I did my own thing, I saw you once a week. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Now I'm building a relationship, but then now it's a comparison. Who's doing what and how? It's are you having a funner life than I am? Right. That's where the anxiety and depression kick in. Right. If you're a farmer nine nine hours a day and you see a fucking politician or a, a priest, he talks an hour a day yeah. and he's, he's living a better life. He's wearing silk and eating roast pheasant and candied plums. Yeah. So as we got more societal, more that's where all the the downfall of society kicks in. Like you said, the anxiety. The my, yeah. that's my impression of. I think so too, but actually, um, so in the end of the book, one of the last chapters. Whoa, whoa, whoa! You just jumping. I know here. we're jumping all over the place. Sorry, folks, <laughs> but I, I think that themes. I, I think maybe the themes are more important than the chronology of the book. After having, okay. having thought about it, but uh, right. towards the end of the book, he talks about how we look back on the lives of these peasants and can't imagine that they weren't miserable and depressed all the time. But he says, "But we have more perspective." to make us miserable and depressed. As in, like you just said, you know, it's very obvious to people in modern day how few, how many people are above them mm-hmm. or are below them. Whereas a peasant in the Middle Ages never went more than a couple miles from his home. He didn't really know there was, an, you know, he didn't dream about a, a boy in a peasant Ambition family. wasn't a thing. Right, yeah. A boy in a peasant family didn't dream of becoming a businessman. He just... Made he just grew food and ate it and then and, rinse and repeat. And, and with that said, and that's not until the last hundred years, maybe. Right. You figure America until the turn of the century, nineteen hundreds, ninety seven percent were farms. Right. People just stayed home. Now it's the opposite. Three percent are farms. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. So this is what's like for the course of history. We call it you reason the word peasant, but most society was that because that's all they knew, and the family built on its profession, no matter what it was. So the key is. Don't use our current situation and look back and apply what we know now to how they lived then because it was a completely different time. They did not know what we knew, what we know. Right. So maybe they were fine, you know, maybe they were okay. Right. And, and going through the agriculture time is all, learning the currency of bartering. I think was a fascinating thing too, right? Oh yeah, which which eventually led to the invention of money, which was... A huge element of all this. Yeah, that... That was a big kickstart into uh, where we are now. Right. As you mentioned, of money. Mm-hmm. A universal exchange, which I've harped on before. Um, right. I still think that it's, I mean, it's extremely useful. It's extremely powerful. I'd say necessary, but it is a double-edged sword, and we're seeing that now. Right. We're seeing the, the edge pointed at, I don't know what, we're seeing the bad side of it now. I think there's always been a bad side of it. But we're, well, right. But, 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 but. I think we're coming to a, a, a apex. Uh, uh, That's true. You're right. There's always been a bad side, but we're really seeing it now. Right. But no, I do like the, the how once we became more societal in the agricultural age, how he talked through trying to value, well, you have this wheat, I have this. I don't care about apples. I want this. And right. So that's why yeah. the level of You want me to make you shoes? I don't need another 10 bushels of apples. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, you know, this is where, okay, we need to create what, a coin. We need to come up with something. And this is where, where we both agree this is valuable and monetized it right i think it's huge yeah it was gigantic yeah so it allowed for it allowed for much easier trade 
it allowed for capitalism to really begin. Correct. And then also putting value. What do we, you know what I mean? I think right. that, I think one of the best quotes of the book, which it's later in the book, but it basically talks about it, the first pand- uh, epidemic of the world was gold. Remember that? Because <laughs> mm-hmm. it's like, you know, because it's like, oh gosh, gold. You like that? You like that? Oh, well, I must get that. Yeah. And how that became the biggest currency right. of them all. So, yeah. And obviously we're in a pandemic now, so I like the verbiage there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the gold bug. Yes. Um, but you you talked about how... Uh, so we, we were talking about the men versus the women argument, why men are in charge. That I'd say that kind of tangentially touches on the idea that men are superior, the idea that white men are superior to black men, the idea that certain races are better than others, which was very prevalent in earlier dec- centuries. And also... Things like the caste system in ancient India, or which still exists to this day, actually. You know, there was the Brahmins, which were the priests. I can't remember the other names, but there was the soldiers and the government, uh, the the politi- the bureaucrats, basically. And then there, or maybe the merchants. And then there was the commoners. And then lastly, there was the untouchables. And it's all based on the human notion of disgust. So the way to turn someone into less than human is to trigger that human reaction to disgust which is innate in us because it allowed us to avoid diseased people which would you know potentially kill us right so to tie these subjects together how the book did very gracefully is well, much more than i am is yeah once we get the agriculture then we were like okay we built a hierarchy and in building the hierarchy who got to get higher up right. is the level of disgust and how they right. create divisions and they, yeah, and the and way they, they do it is by saying it's natural law or it's God appointed. Correct. Which goes into the different constructs of our society today. Right. Which talks about the religious society, you know, right. the religious segment of that. Right. During and then, slavery, you know, white men were superior because that's how God made them, you know. Or there was also lots of pseudoscience talking about how biologically white men were superior. Right, but this is so to this point and throughout the course of time, what this speaks to is how these the untouchables, let's just say, the level of marketing and PR <laughs> and creating perception begun is now I'm going to put tidbits of information and I'm going to put just what do you call it propaganda out there mm-hmm. to lead the masses to the, then create the different caste systems of the day. And it just shows you it's so sad and manipulative, and but very easy. Because it's also who wants to be cool, who has what, what do we value at the time. But yes, each structure did that. They talked about numerous examples. Obviously, you just mentioned in the slavery era when it comes to the South and slavery. And how we kept those imagery, imagery to verbiage to demeaning depictions. right? Whether it's in the newspaper of the day. Uh-huh. Of the blacks looked like monsters or the devil, and they just one guy. Uh, I just watched a good documentary, which we'll talk about next. But when you grow up in a society of racism or hate, uh-huh. you don't know it. Right, it's, it's just, just normal. It's just normal, and you don't even know if you believe it, but it's just what you're being indoctrinated to. Yeah, and that's that's how they did it. It's through again language, through literature, through imagery, through storytelling, and this is how we takes humans throughout the course of time have done this because i don't need to i mean think about this a lot of my biases are some of some of which are not my first-hand experiences right yep for sure my mom was held at gunpoint by a mexican dude now do i hate mexican dudes or do i second guess them it wasn't me it was her you know what i mean but that's how we the association thing Right. Which talks about this really well. Because we yeah. do associate things and we, we categorize, we compartmentalize. Right. The brain loves taking shortcuts. Um, they're called uh, heuristics. Heuristic. Yeah, heuristic shortcuts. This situation basically matches another situation that I've heard of based on all these criteria. Therefore, this situation is like that situation. Right. So as we got more cult- societal, we got more cultural influences. The hierarchy exploited itself. And then we got the social norms and or taboos. Which then goes to using that that disgust mechanism to right. put out, I guess, the groups that you don't like or that you don't that you want to disempower, or we want to empower. I mean, it. right? Well, yeah. So and that that comes up on the the quote that I really liked. I heard it today when I was listening. Um, talking about how he was talking about homosexuality, how mm-hmm. it's 
you know, argument against that is that it's unnatural. Mm-hmm. But he says, you know, nothing is unnatural. If it can happen, it's natural because mm-hmm. everything's in nature, you know. So one way to determine if something is based on biology or if it's based on culture is that the general rule is biology enables and cultures forbid. Yeah, great quote. I love that. It's so I was simple. Actually, that's one of the top quotes that I took away too. Because yeah. it is, yeah. we talk about it a lot on this podcast. You know, nature versus nurture. Ah, you know what I mean? Right, yeah. What what influences, what biases, what norms, what taboos scare us? Yeah, no, I think it's a very, very, very good point. Because again, baseline of humanity now and the baseline of humanity 500 years ago, we all want to be accepted. So whatever that context may be and whatever social class that may be in. So great book, man. It's, it's it. Yeah, here we go. So I actually have another part of it highlighted so it's just shortly after that he expounds on that statement you know the statement biology enables culture forbids says culture tends to argue that it forbids only that which is unnatural but from a biological perspective nothing is unnatural whatever is possible is by definition also natural a truly unnatural behavior one that goes against the laws of nature simply cannot exist so it would need no prohibition and so that's like the explanation of that short but very very powerful statement which makes you think right you 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 yourself he talked about the Greeks. He talked about, let's see, what um, the soldiers, right? Homosexuality. Oh, right, homosexuality yeah. throughout the course of time. Yeah, there have been cultures where it's just been fine. No, no big deal. It was actually sometimes the, the warriors had sex with each other before set, before war because it, it was how they built it up. Like, again. Yeah, blow off steam before, you know, before a combat. Yeah. I can't sleep because I might die tomorrow. Well, there Joe gives great blowjobs, so. Yeah, so there you go. I mean, it's just crazy, like. What people, how they, you know what I mean? And, oh, women over there cooking the food and doing this. I didn't only have sex with her to reproduce. Yeah. That's not fun. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. She doesn't know how to please me, really. Right. So this is where it's, it's, uh, uh, it's crazy. This book covers so much so quick. I mean, politics wise, what this covers. Uh, yeah. It's, I'll, you keep the leadership role on this. I don't want to, <laughs> it just covers so much. Yeah. And it's just so much in depth. It's literally a data point after data point. But now we're in the cultural, we're in the hierarchy, we're in the caste system, and... Okay, here we go. So this is um, this is getting at what we talked about earlier, about human brains being so malleable, mm-hmm. and right starting right from birth. So um, this is in chapter 9, The Arrow of History. It said, Myths and fictions accustomed people nearly from the moment of birth to think in certain ways, to behave in accordance with certain standards, to want certain things, and to observe certain rules. They thereby created artificial instincts that enabled millions of strangers to cooperate effectively. This network of artificial instincts is called culture. So there you go. That's rather right. than genetic instincts, it's cultural instincts. Yeah. And our malleable brains allow those to be programmed into us after birth, which makes us able to evolve much, much, much more quickly than if we were doing it based on biology alone, which you know requires thousands, millions of years. Yeah. I think it's totally true. I mean, it's, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's a... Uh... Problem solve to should I say something? Not say something? Right. Do I just need to do this task, or do I need to be a leader? We're pretty versatile, and that's a good skill set. But at the same time, the masses are pretty much cogs in the, and you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, cogs in the machine. Yeah. <laughs> and because we have to be, as we identified earlier in the uh, agricultural age, well, you want to stay alive, or you need to eat. You need shelter. So it goes to Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Mm-hmm. And we all got to stay, we got to stay safe. Step one. Survival right. beyond survival mode, then you can grow from there. Which goes back to the caste system and the culture of who had what at the time. Right. But yeah, I think, yeah, the ability to adapt, the ability to think beyond situation. And then there's some good quotes in there about just the ability to work as a team. So the reason that... So going back to to early humans and other very, and right. so all the different varieties of humans. Right. I I actually wonder. It seems like based on results that hum that sapiens were better at cooperating than other human species, or perhaps they were more devious, or perhaps they were had more drive to manipulate to get more. You know. Yeah. This the, and he didn't really in his narrative he didn't really say. Right, because there's really no way to know. We don't know, but they were. He did use the word devious, I believe, mm-hmm. in saying how he was. They were able to use language and could dominate situations right. collectively. Whereas yeah. 
others would not, and that's how they took resources over the others. Or oh, right, for example, Neanderthal, which was stronger, had bigger brains, mm-hmm. was better adapted to the cold north, but somehow human um, sapiens beat them, and the suspicion is that they were better at working together, they were better at hunting, so they either exterminated them, which is probably true based on human history. So um, how I visualized this when I was listening to this, I thought of the Patriot, and that being the Revolutionary oh, War. I saw that one. Oh, man. But it's basically what happens is, right, like, he paints a picture of Neanderthals have all the skill sets of warriors, but they're individualistic, and they just kind of, you know, they're mm-hmm. kind of like... Just doing, they're just marching in place, doing one thing. Gentle giants is Gen- kind of the image yeah. that he painted. And you just have these uh, guerrilla warfare happening, right? You know, and just taking them out, because they don't know how to. Re- they don't. They couldn't cognitively figure things out. Like the Americans fighting against the British in the Revolutionary War. Correct, and I visualize that because I just see Mel Gibson throwing an axe at like four of them mm. as they're just marching, because they don't right. know. Oh, and they just you taken out. Yeah, right. They don't have the means to like uh, you know the. Cog- whatever it's cognitively, whether it's like perception, you know, maybe they didn't have, maybe they didn't have the eye where you see it, you know, peripheral. Who knows? But yeah, that's how. So when I'm listening to this, I was like, I thought of the Revolutionary War and really Warfare. Interesting. Yeah. Because I think that's what it was. Because I don't like how you say Neanderthal because I've always said that, but. I think either way is correct. But I'll stick with how I say it because that's why I want to say it. All right. They were probably one on one dominant, as stated. One-on-one dominance. But right. Based on Sapien's yeah. ability to think strategically, outthink them, and then sabotage them. That's how they you know, dominate. Right. And it might not have even come to a direct confrontation. Another possibility that he puts out is that humans, or that Sapiens just outperformed them when it came to hunting and basically stole or took Resources. all their food. Right. And at which point... Um, and then if there were any are any conflicts caused by this, then the sapiens were better at working together, apparently. Right. But Which goes likely... back to the hunter-gatherer, which I think Neanderthal, like individual hunter-gatherer, mm-hmm. they were good, but they couldn't collectively work together. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's very interesting. And I, I mean, that's how it was. They Sapiens basically went around wiping out all the other human species and then wiping out most of the other animal species as well. Right. Which is goes back to warfare, and it goes back to all what we do today. Right. You don't need to kill them directly, but you cut their water source. You cut right. their communication. You kill off the woolly mammoth, the <laughs> mammoth tick dies, or the mammoth flea you know dies. I mean? you know? Yeah, so... Yeah. You burn down the forest because it's hard to get through, yeah. and now there's a nice grassland, but all the animals that lived in the forest die off. So, pretty fucking strategic, man. Yeah. I think one of the statistics that he mentioned is when humans got to Australia, there were 43 large terrestrial animals, and then I think they killed like all but seven of them or something like that. I don't remember. Was it Australia or was it North America? I think it was I remember Australia. Australia. I think it was Australia. Australia. Yeah, it was yeah. Australia. And there was this crazy stat like that too. Yeah. But basically this is, you know, this pillaged. So we come from a really, uh, we come from a powerful lineage. <laughs> well, it goes back to the tree hugger statement. It was never as homerinous as we ever think it was right. once, yeah. like throughout the course of history. Right, the the glorification of the you know the past hunter gatherers. I yeah. suspect that if the agricultural revolution had not happened, humans would have been forced to either become purely vegetarians or would have wiped out all, pretty much all the species on the planet and died off. Because the way things were going before agriculture, you know, killing all the resources, all of the resource. Yeah, like yeah. they would eat, they would eat this animal until it was extinct, and then they'd go to another animal until it was extinct, and then they go to another animal until. I mean, yeah, there's lots of animals on the planet, but there's not that many animals. Well, one, you still gotta kill it. You still gotta find it. See, this is the thing. Mm-hmm. When you grow something, it's not running away from you. Yeah, that's true. You know what I mean? Like, and this is what he spoke to: is this is how we were able to re- reproduce because a steady food source. Right ostensibly it was more stable of a food source. You know what I mean? And this is, you know, hunting's fucking hard. I've never, well, I guess I've killed a few things. Well, also, but, but they did also mostly live off of gathering. Yeah. Hunting was not as... But it wasn't as stable. But still. It wasn't stable. Right. It was regional. They are nomadic. They were, right. you know what I mean? They Blackberries over there went the same blackberries over here. Right. But yeah, I think it makes sense to me Again, when you're nomadic, you have no consistency. When you settle, then you could build some sort of s- 
stability. Right. Hence the agricultural. But but then you're bored. Your brain is getting. Oh well, yeah, going. it was. So going yeah, it was not. It was not a win. Like yeah. there, we didn't win by the agricultural revolution, despite what we used to think. It was actually detrimental, at least to our health, mental and physical health. Right. But not to our species, which is why our species population exploded after the agricultural revolution. Right. Despite overall life getting way shittier for pretty much everyone. Well. Except at least, for the at least they're having more sex. Yeah, right? <laughs> <laughs> more sex and filthier, more squalid conditions. Yeah, yeah. Let's see. So, how do you want to move from here? Because I think we need to go into like the societal things and the cultural things. Do you want to touch upon the cultural things? Because uh, yeah, there's sure. obviously religion. Right. There's social constructs. Yeah. There's boundaries, you know, so land masses of property ownership to... Yeah, okay, let's do that. Um, <laughs> You're the moderator. I'm the moderator? Okay. Yeah. Are you entire? So that's, no, that's just the part of the book that I didn't get to again, so it's less fresh on my mind. It's um, just basically the hierarchy and how we learn to exploit one another. Right. And I think that's, I think that's why it's boring to you. But it just shows you what we did in the inception of is the same thing we're doing now, just different environments. Right. And that's my takeaway is... But yet, because of the social norms of religion, and in America specifically, he kind of concludes like, we're doing the same thing we've done in other societies where we built these constructs and or norms, and now we're dismantling them. And where would that lead us? And will that lead us to, like in biblical sense, to a one world power? Will this lead us to a one currency? So that kind of gives you that little cliffhanger. Right, yeah, he kind of speculates on what, he tells, talks about the current state and then kind of speculates on what it could end up being. Yeah, I mean, I think one of the quotes, I can't quote it, but I, basically like in America, like we're always now seeking for equality, but the bottom line is, in the history of all humanity, there's never been equality. Right. And if you try to reach it, you're just going to implode upon it. Yeah, so what he does is he, um, he rewrites the Declaration of Independence in biological terms. I don't know. I don't, something about that rubs me the wrong way, but he be- definitely, um, I mean, it's definitely an interesting point. It's very, uh, it's a very vivid analogy, I guess you could say. But yeah, I really like the book. I thought the, uh, the talking points leading up to modern day and then all the social norms to the religion stuff to the hierarchies, it so makes sense. And it's all the stuff you know, but that, how he frames it and how we are today within companies, within... Oh, he alludes to how he started with limited liability companies. Mm-hmm. That was very fascinating. and Yeah, that was a huge step forward as far as economics goes. Right. Right. And I like the way he worded out. He, he talked about forming an LLC as wizardry. You cast a certain spell in the right way by writing it out in the correct language onto a paper and then magically... An LLC is born, right? Out of and, nothing. And one of the other things I thought was fascinating, and like we're learning to be humans, but then in business we had to learn not to be humans, right? So upon obviously we know the ten-digit numerical system, and then we had accountants, and then we had clerks, yeah. and how we t- clerks cannot think like humans, and accountants can't think right. like humans. Yeah, that was that hilarious. Was, uh, yeah, that's a fact. <laughs> Yeah, that made me laugh. They too. have to think very. Yeah, yeah. that was hilarious. Yeah. But it's true though, right? We have to think in very non-human sense and just very, right. I guess you could say, logically. And anyone who's anyone who's dealt with a, an accountant or an IT person knows, like yeah. they're they're awkward and weird. They think differently. So that was a really funny way to put yeah. it. Because yeah. obviously he speaks to the history of obviously numbers and how everything's mathematically inclined. Right. Talks about Newton's law. Again, so much is covered in this book. It's like the history of everything Pretty in much. one fucking book. So it's hard to cover. Yeah. And it talks about physics and it talks about the quantum. Yeah, so, but the takeaways are simply humans adapted to fill the rules of the societal means of the day. Right. So we become cogs in the machine, but are you, which cog are you filling and how is it ranked? Right. You know what I mean? Of yeah. the day. And yeah, and so what I, what I like about the book is the overarching themes because throughout the book the main one of the main themes that I that I read into or that I saw was that the march of progress 
has always come with massive downsides. Yes. And that's something that um, I've talked about before when it comes to like science. You know, we we have this idea that science is going to solve all of our problems. You know, our technology will solve all of our problems. And it has, you know, it always has solved all of our problems. But by doing so, it has caused worse problems. Always. All, all of the problems that science has solved, it is replaced with problems that are as bad or worse. But, and it's how it's been since the beginning of time. Yeah, and but it's just so funny. In the formative constructs and hierarchy, and it goes to modern day, we care about science. We care about education. Mm-hmm. But we, we've learned to think business-wise because it all, it all comes back to economics and power and control. And that's what he kind of concludes upon, right? We want to do this philanthropic and we want to lift the cycle of poverty or we want to lift the, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. But realistically, only to a point. Right. <laughs> and what's my, what's my net benefit of it? Right. And it just shows, it goes back to the individual and or the corporate and or the governmental greed that it has to have some sort of buy-in and benefit. Right. Yeah. Because we need a class system. We need a caste system. We need, people the need, pyramid needs to stay in place. Right. People need to have a place. They need to know where they stand in mm-hmm. order for society to function. That's the argument anyway. Right. And I mean, so far, we don't have any evidence to the contrary because that's how it's always been. So it's kind of hard to argue that point. But the right now, working. we're arguing, you know, a lot of a lot of young people, you know, they get into the idealistic mindset. I know I was in, I was there for sure. I kind of well, faded out of it, but you know, like we, it doesn't make sense. Like it seems like there's enough of everything for everybody to have, you know, there's enough food but, for everybody to have enough food, but, but it's not really like that. But this so is well. why I said early on in this saying in the agriculture time, when we started living amongst each other, uh-huh. the comparison point started to right, happen. Right. When you started to intermingle and being social, right. then you're like, that motherfucker has a nice jacket. Right. I want one too. And this is where the downfall of humanity is, but yet it's also built that that idea has is the baseline of capitalism. Right. If you want it, get it, chase it, whatever it takes, and that goes to modern day. You know, we do our best. Like I said in the inception of the hierarchy, the marketing and PR. There's a reason why America today has nice fancy cars, and why you see salespeople driving fancy cars, because it shows the level of success. And gives them innate power. And yeah. because I see that motherfucker has a nice, you know, Gucci shirt on, he must be doing better than I am. And whether you know it consciously or subconsciously, you view it that way. And that's the takeaway of the, uh, the conclusion is we need to have, or we've always had, the competitive spirit within us. Always going back to the hunter-gatherer Neanderthal ways. Now it's just at what level of competition and what social, economic, and cultural system are you working within? Yeah, sorry, I was trying to... There's, a, there's something he talks about where um, the roles we play allow for us to easily understand how, how to treat someone we come across just by seeing them. And it's, but it's perception Because I think the takeaway right. here is perception. Right. Perception has always ruled in humanity. Right. So what he talks about is like now we believe in equality, so rich people wear jeans. But jeans used to be, you know, blue jeans used to be the workers' clothes. Yeah. Back in Victorian era, you would never have seen a noble wearing a peasant's smock. Right. You know, that's what he says. Right. Because back then, and even now, it's just different kinds of status symbols. Like, well, it's trendy. When I see a BMW, I immediately know that guy's an asshole. So well, it's, that's, it's, all, gotta... it's all trendy-based, too. Right. Right? Because right now, in our modern era, 2021, driving a Humvee, a Hummer, is not a status symbol as it was in 1990 with Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> right? I yeah. feel like, oh, he's big, bad, but he's rich. Now it's the now, Tesla. Now and... it's the black shirt with jeans and driving a Tesla. And this is why you saw it. I think Steve Jobs was huge on this. He always dressed down. He always wore jeans. He wore a turtleneck. He's rich as shit. He didn't do the Jack part. Jack part, I'm sorry. Jack Kemp. Jack Kemp? Jack Kemp? No, he's the politician. Oh. Who's the one that was there? Anyways, the CEO status, the jean, the, you know, the blue suits, didn't do the stereotypical 1950s look. Right. So Steve Jobs and the technology front kind of changed. And I think was in the uh, inception of the modern day changing the corporate culture. 
and bringing down the dress code and trying to be more casual. At least in tech, it's still it's still not like in financial. Sure. It still very much exists, but yeah, like sure. the newfangled business culture, which is tech companies, definitely. For but sure. it, I, my my point here is is trends dictate perception, right? And how they want to be perceived, right? And how that changes throughout the course of time. But how you see someone, and this is where I think in my career I've never exploited that at all. Like I never dressed up, shit. You know, I kept it low key, like what I could afford. Right. Well, it didn't work out well. Well, there's a saying, you but, know, dress for the job you want, not the job you have. Correct. Which is why. Correct. And anytime I see someone who doesn't have a job that requires wearing a suit and they wear a suit to work, I'm just like, oh, you poor soul. Right. Always striving. So no, I think it's a. The book made sense to me. And it covers so much. Check it out. It's very good. I apologize for completely demolishing the articulate way in which the author laid everything out. We were all over the place and jumped around. But um, like I said, it was the themes that I liked. It really, it really brought up a lot of, a lot of themes in other books that I've read and other, in other descriptions of histories that I've read, documentaries, mm-hmm. both culturally and biologically. It ties everything together. Yeah, it was excellent. Yeah, an excellent weaving of, of a massive story, basically. Right. So check it out. If you read it, listen to it. Have any thoughts, comments, please put it out there. We'll do an episode with you if you want to. Uh, because it covers everything. And it, it's, it, this is why we have all the templates of our society from religion to the Ten Commandments to the Constitution. Right. Yep. Because we need constructs. Right. So, That's yeah. That was our power. Our power was imagination and the ability to treat things that are not real as if they are. Make them... The, Perceive um, for on in a wide, yep, uh, like widely and it, he calls it intersubjectively. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know if that's a real term or if that's what he makes up, but yeah. All right, so uh, once again, that is *Sapiens: A Brief History of Humankind* by Yuval Noah Harari. All right, thanks everybody.